Matthew 21, starting in verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For God came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did, and you did not believe him. But yet the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son... They said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Thank you. You may be seated. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would come and give us open eyes and ears and hearts that we may hear and see believe, respond. Father, we open a living word. And so, Father, would you have your way in us for your glory, through it and by it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I've only received one speeding ticket in my life, and it's been since I've moved to Maryland. It was the day when Colin broke his arm, and we were told to quickly take him to Children's Hospital in Washington, D.C., because he would need surgery. They said, we don't even recommend you go home first, that you go straight there. So, as a good dad, I proceeded to drive with a sense of urgency about me, and began to make our way to Washington, D.C., which we arrived. He had the surgery. It was actually a lot worse than we thought, so he was there multiple days. Came home and 
all is well today with his arm, for the most part. Well, many weeks later, along with the tidal wave of medical bills, we received a kind statement in the mail from the government of Washington, D.C., whatever they're called. They had a nice little picture of my Jeep with the license plate on it, and it proceeded to tell me that I was doing 45 and a 35, and one of those kind red light cameras had caught me. Well, I was a bit agitated by that, as most would be, because of the emergency that was at hand. Now, what I didn't take the time to do is realize that they didn't realize that there was a sensitive emergency at hand, and so I began to appeal my case by collecting the medical statements and bills and go through this lengthy process of appealing and saying it was an emergency. Yes, I was doing uh, that speed in which I was caught. I don't deny that, but it was, a sense, it was an emergency. Well, it was some time, a long time later, months, that I was finally told that I had not submitted adequate proof and thus needed to pay the fine. Or I could still appeal, but it would take two to three years uh, to get word as to whether or not they agreed with my appeal. So I paid the fine. You know, I think about that event, and it's frustrating and humorous at the same time, uh, you know, because I ultimately had challenged the authority the government of Washington, D.C., and lost. Now, you could argue that, well, you could have appealed and eventually won. At the end of the day, really, they won. You know, we could look at various authorities in our lives and various authorities that have been put into place and see the good and the bad and the ugly in the midst of it all. And we can question authority and we can sit there and analyze, well, that's just yet another problem with government, and there's certainly all kinds of problem with, with that, and I'm not here to speak about government today at all. But I am here to speak about the authority of the true king of an everlasting kingdom. You see, for some time, the Pharisees had been questioning Jesus' authority, challenging his authority. And when we come to Matthew's chapter 21, in particular these two parables, there had already been strife between Jesus and the Pharisees, religious leaders, for quite a while. But, but it seems here to, to, come some, to, to come to a head. It seems to, to intensify because he, he uses two parables to specifically confront them in their rebellion against his authority. And they know it by the time he's finished. They had questioned his authority. In fact, there had been many, like the Pharisees, who had questioned his authority, and, but there had been some, though few, who had embraced Christ and submitted to his authority. Friends, until Jesus comes again, that's the way that it will be. There will be those who stand in opposition to Christ and his authority, claiming their own authority, submitting to other authorities, or saying all authorities are valid. Just pick one. But then there will be those who, by the grace of God, will see the beautiful authority of the King of kings and Lord of lords and gladly 
submit to his authority. Well, when we look at these two parables, when we consider what Jesus is saying, what what we have really is a collision of authority here. We have the authority of Jesus that continues to be demonstrated and displayed, and yet the authority of the Pharisees that seek to confront him because they sense that they're losing power and authority. What I want us to see this morning from Matthew 21, from these two parables, and we're going to look at them um, together, I want us to, to make four observations about the authority of Christ and our response to his authority. And really, we're just going to make four observations from these parables, with, with his authority sort of as the backdrop of what's going on here and the questioning of that authority. We're going to make four observations from these parables that would help us understand when, when we collide with the authority of Christ, seeking to undermine his authority, seeking to challenge his authority, seeking to deny his authority, we don't stand a chance to come out victorious because he is the triumphant king. Four observations. Let's look at this passage together. Notice, first of all, what I call the exposure of hypocrisy. In verses 28 through 33, we have the parable of the two sons. Let's set this parable up here. We we have a vineyard. Both parables have a vineyard. Must have been California, right? We have a vineyard. We have a father and two sons. The father goes to both sons and commands them to go work in the vineyard. The first son says, no. (laughs) No. I've never seen a child tell his parent no. But later regrets it and repents and goes and works in the vineyard. But then we see the second son. He says, I go, I will go but he never went. And so Jesus asked the question, which of the two did the will of his father? And the Pharisees replied this time, the first. First son. Jesus goes on to explain the parable that indeed he was exposing the hypocrisy of these Jewish leaders. He was exposing their hypocrisy and he was He was pointing to them that it was the the tax collectors and prostitutes, the most unlikely and unfit, outwardly speaking, that would actually go into the kingdom before those who seemed most likely and fit, quote-unquote, to enter the kingdom. The kingdom of God was more accessible to the scum of, of society than it was to these polished religious leaders. Notice the two sons again. I would actually say, on the surface, both sons were wrong in how they responded initially. The only difference is that one eventually regretted the response and repented 
turned from his rebellion against his father and went to work in the vineyard. When we read this parable, we see that Jesus is making clear that that the kingdom of God is is received by, by the most unlikely of candidates. And it's like these religious hypocrites, like the Pharisees, that would be the most likely candidate to be considered outside of the kingdom. And he clarifies that by, by asking the question, and he emphasizes the, the importance of, of transformation here. He, he says, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said the first, and Jesus says, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness. You did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. What Jesus is saying here, really, is at the end of the day, actions speak louder than words. James put it this way, faith without works is dead. Not that we're saved by our faith. But our faith will demonstrate itself through our works. We're not, not that we're saved by our works, I should say. Clarify that piece before some of you have a heart attack. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, not by works. Let's, let's make that clear, clear this morning. The first son demonstrates his, his rebellion but ultimately repents, demonstrating a changed heart. The second son gives a positive response, yes, I'll go, but he never shows up, giving us a picture of, of, who, God, of, of who give God all the surface-level compliance that they can give and yet still refuse to obey the Lord. And all that Jesus is saying here is that those who claim to be God's people will show it by submitting to his authority. John chapter 14, verse 15, we read, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. There are several things that I I think you should take away from this parable for your own life. First of all, you you should examine your heart. Listen, religious hypocrisy is rampant in our churches. We have throngs of people who profess with their mouth, but their hearts, demonstrated by their behavior, ultimately prove that they don't submit to the authority of Christ. Listen to the warnings again in Matthew chapter 23 to the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Friends, if this could be true of the religious elites, how much more true could it be for us? Friends, the first place you and I need to examine is is our hearts. 
do we ultimately have a changed heart? We talked in our equip class this morning from Luke 6 that, that good trees don't bear bad fruits, and bad trees don't bear good fruits. says in that text in Luke 6, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. We should examine our hearts. Have we, have we genuinely repented of our sins and turned to serve Christ? Are we like the first son? Or are we more like the second? Not only should we examine our hearts, we should evaluate our work. Are you striving to do the will of God by pursuing His commands with joy? You know, outward signs of compliance are not ultimate. They must be heart-driven. For example, when we gather for worship, we can have a room full of first and second sons present today. Just because you have come to worship doesn't mean you truly came to worship. We could have hypocrisy all over the room. In fact, that's often what people accuse Christians of. Why would I go to church? It's full of hypocrites, to which we should say there's always room for one more. We don't deny that. We're sinners. Friend, what, what are you doing to help cultivate the vineyard? Are you bearing fruit that is consistent with vineyard-type fruits? See, Jesus is exposing the hypocrisy of the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, showing that, listen, you can put the outward stuff on all day long, but you will ultimately demonstrate whether or not you belong to me when you go and work in my vineyard. We have to begin in the heart because we can put on a show for people. We can look busy like vineyard workers. We can look like busy vineyard workers all day long, and if our hearts have not been truly transformed, we're nothing more than a Pharisee or like a second son here in this text. You know, I'm not sure that, that we really feel the shock value of this text like the Pharisees would have felt it. Due to our culture today, I, I think that, that, the, that the, when you hear about a tax collector and a prostitute, that, that it doesn't have the, I think we've almost become numb to those kinds of things, and it doesn't feel as shocking today as it once did, maybe. But for a Pharisee to be told that tax collectors and prostitutes would go in the kingdom of God before them, those were fighting words. Jesus is simply saying that the kingdom of God belongs to people we had never imagined. 
And as a church, this, this should also, as a secondary application, help inform and paint a picture of how we are to do gospel ministry. You know, there's a lot of talk today about implicit racial bias. And it's true. We draw conclusions about people just by looking at them. I guarantee you've done it all week. Every single one of us have done that. You look at somebody, doesn't matter their color, doesn't matter their background, doesn't matter their, their, their language, whatever. You look at them and you've drawn certain conclusions about them. And we as a, as a, as a people have to learn to fight against those biases that we have and, and, and learn to, to picture of them, to learn to look at them and examine them as those who are created in the image of God and, and step back and... and draw proper conclusions. But while that may be true, we do the very same thing with the gospel. You could call it implicit kingdom bias. We will look at someone and we will think, they're not fit for the kingdom. They would never believe this stuff. You could look at another person that seems to be very moral and upright and polished. Say, yeah, it's those kinds of people that would believe this stuff. And draw certain conclusions and then only be taking the gospel to those people you think will respond. When in reality, it's the very unlikely candidates that would receive the kingdom of God before those. Friends, the gospel is received by those you least expect, and it's ultimately opposed by those who seem the more likely candidates. So, one thing that this parable should do is cause us to step back and say, I'm, I'm taking the gospel to everybody. Doesn't matter what they look like, what they talk like, what they wear, what they sound like. Doesn't matter what I think. God is a sovereign God, and he can save anyone even those that seem most unlikely. He exposes hypocrisy, but number two, the severity of sin. Moving on to the next parable, it's another vineyard. You know, when you think about parables, most, most parables, not all, most of the parables have, have one overarching point. And this parable seems to break the pattern a bit because there seems to be several points and observations emerging from it. So just to, just to summarize the parable again, you have a vineyard, an owner. The owner sets up the vineyard there in verse 33, puts a, plants a vineyard, puts a fence around it. Just look at the care that he takes with this vineyard. Builds a tower in it, leases it to tenants. And he goes away into another country. So this vineyard owner hires tenants, tenant farmers, to come and work the vineyard while he's away. But then, as the time for harvest, or the season for fruit, in verse 34, draws near, he sends his servants to, to gather the fruit. Seems logical. But they're not received so well, are they? Send servants, they're brutalized and killed. and Then he sends more servants, the same thing, and then he sends his son... And they kill him. You know, if you read in, in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, 
the Lord there describes Israel as a vineyard. So you have this, this imagery as, of the people of God in the Old Testament as, of being described in vineyard terms, except in that specific chapter, it's, it's not a healthy vineyard. Things have soured, no pun intended. It's not a healthy, thriving vineyard. And here he's using vineyard language to refer to his people again. And the pain and the effort he goes to to protect the vineyard, it demonstrates his confidence that this vineyard will will produce the intended fruit he desires. So, He places the tenant farmers there, and yet we see that a significant problem arises. As I said earlier, they kill the servants. Sort of have this imagery of Israel and the servants who come as the prophets. Old Testament language here. These tenants treat the vineyard as if it ultimately belonged to them. They, they, They undermined the authority of the vineyard owner and attempted to put themselves in place of him. Think about that. They sought to undermine the authority of the owner of the vineyard and put them play themselves in the place of his authority, acting as if the vineyard was ultimately theirs to tend and care for. Friend, this is the way of sin, isn't it? You go back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 5, and we know that that interaction there that, that Eve had with the serpent in the garden he, he's, a, he's, he's, he's putting the temptations in her, in her way, and, and he says to her about the tree that she's been forbidden to eat from. He says, surely God didn't say that. And then she says, no, he, he actually did. And he goes on and he says, well, the reason he said that is because he knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. And it was at that moment that the woman saw the fruit was a delight to her eyes, good to eat. She took and ate because she wanted, and Adam ultimately wanted to to be like God. And sin always leads us to reject God's authority and to place ourselves in that seat. Remember the Jewish leaders were, were put into place to care for God's vineyard. Read the Old Testament, and, and that's their purpose. They were there to care for the people of God and to, to lead them, but they sought their own authority. They, they ended up persecuting the prophets. They killed the prophets. They stoned Zechariah. They beat Jeremiah and put him in stocks. And, and legend and history tells us that, that, that others were killed. Then you come to the New Testament, and in prophetic fashion, John the Baptist comes and preaches. What happens to him? He loses his head. And then Jesus, our great prophet, comes and is demonstrated here in the coming of the Son. He's killed. Since these leaders have been given great privilege, these tenants have been given a great privilege, but they abused their privilege in order to seek their own agenda and their own glory. 
Let that be a reminder to each of us who find ourselves with enormous privilege as the people of God. We've been given a place at the table of the king. We've been adopted into the family of God, not by any merit of our own. We are joint heirs with Christ. Recipients of the promises of God, and we've been entrusted with a faithful ministry. You know, my question for you and for me and for us as the people of God is, what will the Lord find when he returns to collect the fruit that was to be cultivated by our hands. There's a great temptation for us to forget that the kingdom of God's the kingdom of God is God's and not ours. We're merely called to be his tenants and servants. We're not the owner. And sin will always lead us away from submitting to Christ and his authority down a path that seeks to elevate ourselves so that we become the authority. You see that magnified here in the parable of the tenants, the severity of sin, the, the, where sin will take you. Leads me to the point number three, the sweetness of grace. You see the exposure of hypocrisy. You see the severity of sin, but now you, you see this the sweetness of God's grace. You know, when you, when, you, when you think about authority, and I just say that word, we oftentimes, maybe not all of us, but oftentimes we will think of some aggressive, authoritarian kind of rule, a rule that often has little to no regard for those underneath. And maybe some of you think, yeah, I work there. We've experienced those kinds of authorities before. Where, where is it? They have no regard for those underneath them. This is not the way of God. While he is indeed the sovereign king of the entire universe, owning not only the cattle on 10,000 hills, but the 10,000 hills themselves. And he ultimately has the right to do with his creation all that he determines to. Even though he has that level of authority, he is a patient and gracious and good and kind I love an old Martin Luther quote. Luther once said, if, he said, if I were God and the world had treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. But I'm grateful Martin Luther isn't God. Because we have a God who is perfect. Perfect in justice and righteousness and perfect in grace and kindness. Psalm 86 verse 5 says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. You know, you read this parable and you say, these tenants deserved immediate justice. They do. They deserve that. He sends his servants, they beat them up and kill, kill one of them. Sends more of the same thing. Sends the son... Same thing. But after the first group of servants, they deserved immediate justice. But the master here is patient, and he sends others. And he's patient, ultimately, to the point of sending his own son. 
You know, liberal scholars get a hold of this parable, and they, they claim that the gospel writers took liberty here and exaggerated the story from its original form because no human landowner would have ever done this. So it can't be accurate. Friends, that's the point. No human landowner would have done that. We would have demanded immediate justice. But God is patient. He is gracious. William Hendrickson said it this way. He said, it is a parable depicting sin most unreasonable and love incomprehensible. These tenants were wicked tenants and indeed deserved immediate justice. And while God is just and in no way will he clear the guilty, he is also slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Friends, are you not grateful for his patience? Are you not grateful this morning that God doesn't give immediate justice? None of us would be here today if he did. None of us would be here. But he's gracious, he's patient, he's long-suffering, he's kind, and he gives us what we don't deserve. You see the sweetness of grace saturating this parable. He is a God who is over all. And he's a God who, will, who is just and who will bring justice, but he is a God of grace and patience and mercy. The number four. Another thing that we observe from this passage is the triumph of Christ. We, we've walked through the first two points, really, that exposes the sinfulness of man, the, the hypocrisy, and just how bad sin can be in response to the authority of Christ. But then now we've seen how, how God, he's all over all, he's authoritative, and he's, but he's gracious. But when you get to this last point, we see his justice, the fact that Christ is triumphant. In Daniel chapter 2, we read about Nebuchadnezzar. He had a dream. Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon, and the Babylonians had, had taken many of the, the people captive into exile, and, and Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and, and Daniel is there, and, and no one is found that, that's able to interpret the dream. But Daniel says that he can. And in Daniel chapter 2, verse 31, this is what we read in Daniel's interpretation. He says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron of clay and the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. 
But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to, the, to whom the God of heaven has been given the kingdom, who has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given. Wherever they dwell, and the children of man, the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, and because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of the potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And here's verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made this known to the king. What shall be after this? The dream is certain and its interpretation is true. And I think it's with this in mind that Jesus now is telling these Pharisees. He asked them, when the vineyard comes, or when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretched Wretches to a miserable death and let our vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 118. He says, have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Just like that imagery in Daniel 2. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The chief priests and Pharisees heard this parable. They perceived that he was speaking about them. And all they they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. While the owner demonstrates amazing patience, there was coming a day when he would return. And the tenants would face the consequences of their behavior. And it's interesting, Jesus here quotes Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. That psalm itself is a thanksgiving hymn celebrating the deliverance of Israel from other enemies by miraculous victory. And in that psalm, Israel was referred to as a cornerstone. It was a nation despised by people all around and constantly threaded. And God says here that he would make it the capstone. Now you get to New Testament. The New Testament writers, and including Jesus, saw this imagery from Psalm 118 as ultimately pointing to Christ. That he is now in view. That he is the the cornerstone, the capstone. Very beautiful and decorative stone that would often be put into place. So as the stone, Jesus is the one the builders rejected. But this stone is not simply tossed aside and crumbled. 
He's pointing to the triumph of his kingdom. It would be this stone that would crush those who denied him and opposed him. Listen, God will remove the wicked tenants from their privileged status and give the vineyard to new tenants. What he's saying here is, is some, some take this as a, as a direct implication that he's now removing his, his privilege or the blessings of the Jews and giving them to the Gentiles. And that's not totally true. He does do that. He doesn't totally discount the Jews at this point. He's talking about the Pharisees, the corrupt, evil leaders within. He's saying, I'm taking them, the kingdom away from them and giving it to the people, my people, who are comprised of both Jew and Gentile, the blessings that they will, rejoice, that they, they will enjoy. Friends, listen, the point of all of this is that No matter the opposition, God's vineyard will prevail and he as the owner will come and hold those accounts that refused to work this vineyard. And those who stand in opposition to the Son, as verse 44 states, will be broken to pieces and crushed. The point is this, it's a dangerous and ultimately deadly thing to remain in opposition to Christ. And you may be here today and you, and you, you're trying to grasp all of this. Parables are often hard and, 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 and sometimes we're, we're trying to, to understand them. And you may, you may be here today and you think, you know what, I, I sound more, more like in the first parable, that second son. And, you know, I have interest in spiritual things, but I've really... I've not committed myself to that. Or maybe I'm more like these evil tenants. Or maybe you don't even see yourself in the vineyard. And the hope for you is that Jesus, this son that comes and is killed, is ultimately pointing us to the son that came and was slaughtered on Calvary's cross. On the cross laid down his life so that wicked tenants, so that wicked men and evil men and women could be rescued. And the hope that you have today, the hope that you and I have is that if we would simply trust in this Son, if we would simply place our hope and trust and turn from our wickedness and our our dependence upon our own authority, upon our own self-sufficiency and trust in him and recognize his supremacy over all things and commit ourselves to him by his grace we will be welcomed and there's many types of authority in this world and really all authority is is a reflection of god's authority at least it was designed to be that way But we realize we live in a fallen world, and so when we consider the authorities that are in place, there are many times that we recognize the corruption and the injustice and the flawed authorities that that exist. And at the very core of all of this is is the sinner's heart that, that doesn't even want authority. We reject it. But God in His grace has established an authority that is holy, righteous, and everlasting. And when our righteous vineyard owner returns, we all will give account to him.
If that day were today, would you be crushed? Or would you stand in hope and in victory? In the midst of a world filled with hypocrisy, betrayal, and rejection, we have a faithful Savior. A faithful Savior who laid down His life for sinners in triumphant fashion. Have you yielded to this great Savior? Are you producing the fruits of this kingdom that He's called you to produce? Friends, on that day, will you stand or will you be crushed? Only you can answer that question. Let's pray. Father, as we hear your word, we hear embedded in it the call to recognize and embrace your authority. But we also realize, Lord, that there is, as evidenced in these parables, the, the reality of sin that holds us back, that, that keeps us at bay. And Lord, we can't pave our own way. We can't seek to make our way into the vineyard. There's only one way into that vineyard, and it's through the, through the Son, through our Lord Jesus. So Lord, would you, would you make us faithful fruitful vineyard workers? Would you not let us be like these evil tenants and like the second son who simply give voice to what we're about but ultimately denied in our hearts? Lord, would you expose our hearts this morning Would you help us see who we truly are? Would you help us see that our only hope is in Christ? Father, if there's hypocrisy in this room, would you snuff it out? Would you give us genuine hearts? Truly repentant hearts that love you and that love your vineyard? Pursue the fruits of righteousness. Father, would you help us to realize that one day we will stand before you and give account. That you will bring justice. That you will bring us to account for our sin and for our actions. And our only hope on that day, Lord, our only hope is whether or not we've trusted in the one who gave himself for sin. For the one who knew no sin but yet became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, there's not a righteous bone in our bodies because it's all affected by sin. But Lord, 
We can be covered by the one who is righteous. We can be cleansed by the one who laid down his life for us, knowing, Lord, that that there's room for all. The lowliest of the low, the outcast. Father, it's not the healthy that you came for, it's the sick. And Lord, we're all sick. We're all stained by sin. And so, Lord, would you call us to to repentance this morning? Would you call us to faith? Would you call us to hope in the one who has conquered, the one who is triumphant? Would you call us to believe in him and trust in him and follow him? God, move in our hearts now as we stand and sing. Help us to respond in faith, trust, and hope. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.